0: and welcome to Downstream. I'm Ash Sarka and I'll be interviewing Michael Pollan, the author of How to Change Your Mind, The Omnivore's Dilemma and This Is Your Mind on Plants. So double drop, drink some water and tune in. Thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this book Uh, and I read it, I think, in a park and I could sort of smell weed smoke kind of coming (laughs) from the playground and it felt like the perfect environment. But to sort of get right to a fundamental question there are lots of things which alter our consciousness or make us feel physically different but they're not called drugs we don't call sex a drug don't call gambling a drug so what is the definition of a drug that you're using
1: well good question there there really is no good definition of a drug i mean it's a substance you take into your body that changes you in some way uh, could change your body, could change your mind.
0: Sugar does that
1: exactly, but there are foods that do that. Chicken soup does that. Um, uh, a
0: good chicken soup, anyway.
1: And then a placebo does that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the distinction between food and drugs is very difficult to draw. Um, there are things that are kind of on the edge, but I think most people understand it as a, as a chemical compound, usually an isolated compound uh, that has a uh, has an effect when you ingest it, and is usually regulated uh, according to one scheme or another. It's either approved for use as over the counter or prescription, or it's con- or it's a controlled substance, and it's you know uh, has to be approved by the government. And then you have a bunch, of course, that are illegal. And that category, illicit drugs, is um, as hard to define and as arbitrary as anything else. I mean, there are drugs on there that are you know Schedule One. That's the highest rank. Uh, which means it has a uh, high potential for abuse and no accepted medical value. Well, cannabis is there. Um, what is that doing there? Um, alcohol, if it were being regulated according to the scheme, mm. might end up in schedule one Hard to say, but it's been exempt. You know, we look at these drug laws and there's a there's a high degree of historical contingency and arbitrariness.
0: But what explains the moral content? Because the UN convention which concerns drugs is the only one which uses the word evil. Genocide, war crimes, torture doesn't use the word evil. So what? Well, we've moralized drugs,
1: and we've done that for a long time. We had a whole politics in the in the nineteenth century around uh, prohibition. It was the anti-abortion issue of its time, right? It was evangelicals, in large part, uh, very religious people who thought that alcohol was the evil, and it was destroying families and destroying society, and they moved until they managed to actually get it banned. And we underwent prohibition. It it failed just as the drug war is failing. Um, But it created a lot of um, illegal fortunes. (laughs) It put the Kennedys in America on the map. It was a folly. I think the desire to change consciousness is a deep human urge. I I think it's universal. Um, There is the only example of a culture or country that doesn't have a plant or fungus they use to change consciousness in some ways is, um, is the Inuit in Greenland. And the only reason they don't is nothing good grows there. Um, Aren't
0: there um, psychedelic mushrooms which are eaten by the reindeer or did I make that up?
1: Yeah, you know, there's there are lichens that are eaten by reindeer and I think if you eat their urine, drink their urine, you might get some <laughs> buzz, but I don't, I don't think the would have figured that one out.
0: So, how did you become interested in consciousness altering plants? Because I've had a great time on various things, but it never occurred to me to write a book about yeah. it.
1: <laughs> well, it occurred to me to write a book before I'd had a great time <laughs> Many things, actually. Um, you know, if you if you trace back my interest as a as a writer, it's plants and gardens have been very central to it. My first mm-hmm. book was a book called Second Nature, and it was really essays about what I was learning in my garden as I began to garden. I have a um, a small piece of property in uh, New England, and um, I realized that the garden was a fascinating place to examine the human relationship with nature. We tend, especially in America, to go to the wilderness and the wild, and that's where the only true nature is. And, and we have this wonderful tradition of nature writing, uh, and John Muir and um, Henry David Thoreau, and it's all about the wild. And um, my hunch was that there were actually, at this point in our in our history, there's probably more to be learned in the garden than the mm. wild. Um, We've, we've preserved the wild land we're going to preserve, pretty much. Uh, it's 8% of the American continent. We have to figure out how to live in the part of the landscape where we cannot help but change it. It is a garden, either a, a shitty garden or a great garden um, or something in the middle.
0: you got to come and have a look at my patio. I think it's more on the shitty side. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this is the land we have to worry about. So how do we behave in nature without destroying it? The wilderness ethic is a spectator ethic. You mm. watch, you appreciate, you have experiences of the sublime and awe, and it's all wonderful, and it produces great poetry and great philosophy. It's
0: the kind of Coleridge, Wordsworth, yeah, I'm looking yeah, that, at a mountain, I'm feeling something.
1: Exactly, and it's a wonderful tradition, but it, it it's what to do with nature. It says, leave it alone, mm. and you know, wish we could do more of that, but we are where we are, and we have to start out from here, and where we are is We've changed, you know, most of the most of the landscape, and agriculture has done most of it. And figuring out ways to do it well as opposed to poorly is is really the issue. So so the garden as a metaphor and an actual place seemed to me interesting to explore and see if we could derive some environmental lessons from there. I got fascinated in the garden, as people are wont to do, with plants and mm-hmm. our relationship to plants. And I have enormous respect for plants. And I've come to appreciate that. Um, they're not just doing what I want them to do, I'm doing what they want.
0: You feel that you've been hacked? I've been hacked.
1: I've definitely been hacked. I think all of us have been, been hacked. I think when you mow your lawn, which I no longer do, but when you mow your lawn, you are fulfilling the needs of the grasses to make sure the trees don't come back because they're enemies of the trees. They need the sunlight. And so by pleasing us with these wonderful, you know, green uh, beds um they get us to make sure their enemy trees never reappear or not in large numbers and um so i i had this insight in my garden um i was planting potatoes one day um and it was a it was an april it was may day and in new england and there was an apple tree in my garden and all the bees were all over this apple tree. It was just vibrating with their attention. And and I was watching it and I was planting. And what I love about gardening is it really doesn't take up all your mental space. I mean, you can just Mm. let your mind drift and you're not gonna chop off a finger as you would if you were woodworking or something. (laughs) So um, it occurred to me that I had more in common with those bees than I realized. Those bees thought they were getting the best of that apple tree and those blossoms and they were breaking in and stealing the nectar and, um, and then leaving. And, um, and I thought I was getting the value of these potatoes by planting them. But of course we had both been induced to spread the genes of this species, Mm -hmm. um, by our desire for sweetness in the case of an apple food in the case of the potato. And in the same way, the bee has been hoodwinked, um, and you know given something but but without even being aware is carrying pollen to the next tree is has been exploited and um in all sorts of ways and the plant has evolved incredible tricks to get that bee to pay a visit and concentrate exclusively on that species and not another um so i have a, a lot of respect for the ingenuity of plants and the fact that they can manipulate us as much as we manipulate them and that relationship has fascinated me. So, at the heart of that relationship, I am getting around to the answer to your question. No, 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 um, no. I'm just listening. It's wonderful <laughs> having more than 10 minutes. <laughs> um, the way the plants have, the domesticated plants have thrived is by gratifying our desires. They're great students of our desires. Mm. We have some very obvious ones like sweetness. We grow apples or beauty. We grow tulips and and, and other flowers. Um,
0: That was the tulip craze. I mean, the tulips really brought down the sort of European economy and
1: we will go crazy for certain plants. Yes. And um, whether that was good news for the tulip or not is an interesting question (laughs) because after it was over, everybody like turned on the tulip and they started smashing them in the streets and destroying them as evil. (laughs) Another another drug war. anyway um but one of the desires that plants have evolved to gratify is a very curious desire and that is the desire to change consciousness and i've been fascinated by that for a very long time and in fact in uh, a book i wrote uh, in 2001 called the botany of desire there's a chapter on cannabis as well as a chapter on tulips Mm -hmm. and potatoes and um, apples we get the desire for beauty we get the desire for food but why should we have this deep human desire to change consciousness? It seems like a dangerous thing to have. Um, You know, you're more accident prone when you change consciousness, you're more uh, likely to be um, attacked, you know, your defenses are down. Um, This doesn't necessarily seem like an adaptive human desire. Um, So I've been curious about that and looking looking into it, and that's the deep narrative behind my interest in drugs.
0: I mean, it's so interesting to me that you, frame that human desire to alter consciousness within the garden. Because what it reminds me of is the way the garden is figured in Eastern and Islamic traditions. So in the West, the garden is a space of control, regimented nature. Here are the flower beds, here's the lawn, here's the tea, you're drinking it. Um, Whereas in the Eastern tradition, uh, the garden is a space of sensuality and decadence. So. The Islamic vision of heaven, Jannah, is a yeah. walled garden, and the idea is, is if you don't drink alcohol and you forbear from kind of you know fornication and stuff in your
1: this real awaits. life,
0: you get all of it in Jannah. So you go in, and suddenly there's grapes, and there's booze, and there's the huris and there's all of this kind of thing. Like, was that there for you, this Eastern garden, or is that just me? A little projecting? bit.
1: You know, when I was writing about tulips, actually, I learned a lot about the the gardens where tulips were displayed in in Turkey and. Um, uh, and they had a very different vibe. I mean, they were, um, you know, I don't want to use the word decadent, but they were indulgent places mm. in all sorts of ways. And and it's true that, especially in America, we tend to moralize our gardens a lot. Um, we will we, we'll point out our compost pile before we'll point out our bourbon roses. So <laughs> we just think that's... So so upright. There's something kind of Puritan about that. Well, it is. Everything about us is Puritan in one one degree or another.
0: And um, once one, one sense, everything about Americans is Puritan. Then you go there and you are like, oh, you've got loads of guns and cannabis and yeah. no healthcare. <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah, we don't have to go there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but but gardens are about intoxication, though, at, at every different level. I mean, you know, you plant things. You plant roses for their scent and. Roses are very sexy flowers. I mean, there's sex all over the garden, plant sex.
0: I mean, sometimes if you're lucky, other kinds as well. Other kinds
1: too. Yeah, that happens. But um, so I think that there is a sensuality about these gardens, even though, yes, people talk about control. But, you know, remember in um, the Oz, Wizard of Oz, just being in present to poppies has the effect mentally. And um, and I think that's true. So I, I think that there is a kind of, maybe it's once removed, maybe it's sublimated, but I think some of that sensuality is going on in any garden.
0: I mean, let's move on to the poppy because that is your uh, first chapter yeah. here. And you're discovering the poppy as kind of a gardener. And then suddenly you're interacting in this kind of weird cat and mouse game with the, the state. The government, yes. Um, so could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Well, I kind of stumbled into this uh, <laughs> disaster. Um, this is many years ago. It was in the late 90s. I was uh, a, a newly minted freelance writer. I'd been an editor at Harper's Magazine for 10 years and um, set out on my own to write. And we moved up to the country where we could live more cheaply. And um, I was writing columns about what was going on in my garden uh, for Harper's and the New York Times Magazine. And my editor sent me this underground press book called um, Opium for the Masses. And it was a-, a We ri- love
0: a bit of Karl Marx here at yes, Hivara Media. Bet.
1: <laughs> and um, it was uh, a guide to growing your own opium. I was like, wow, I'd grown cannabis, mm. but you could grow opium? That's really cool. And the gardener's first instinct is, I want to see if I can do that. Um, you know, I don't I don't want opium. I, I, I don't use opium, but- if I could grow it, that would be kind of cool. So I start following the directions of the book. And it turns out that opium poppies are um, this widely available, legally available seed that you can get at any good garden center or, or a seed catalog. It's not always called verse Omniferum. That is the official name, but because of a certain amount of controversy. Doesn't
0: that mean sleepiness sleep. yes. or something? Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. it puts you to sleep. Um, and... Um, and I, I planted them. I got in touch with the author. This um, He was a kind of zine writer in the in the 90s who was obsessed with drugs. And uh, he, he had a zine called Pills a Go-Go that was very <laughs> funny. And I had reprinted uh, some of his stuff in Harper's. And uh, I started corresponding with him and say, what kind of seeds do you recommend? What has the most potency? Do you have any seeds I could borrow or trade? And um, and then I get word that Jim Hawkshire has been arrested. And that a SWAT team from the Seattle Police Department had busted into his apartment, thrown him up against the wall, seized his computer, and uh, that really got my attention. Seized his computer and charged him with the crime of conspiracy to manufacture opium, or, or just manufacturing opium. And was, was
0: Pills of Gogo used against him in the court?
1: No, but this, but the book "Opium for the Masses" was, and that because- wasn't covered by
0: First Amendment. Freedom of speech stuff, because you guys at least have a First Amendment, we know. Yes, we
1: do, we do. We have have some of it left. Um, uh, The deal is with poppies, if you grow them in the knowledge that they are a scheduled substance, they are criminal. If you don't know that and you're growing them merely as a garden plant, it's fine. So mens rea, state of knowledge is the key here. In his case, all they got him with was a box of dried poppies he had bought at a florist shop. You can find them in any florist shop, those beautiful bulbs with a little finial on top. Yeah, I
0: think my stepdad has them.
1: Oh, they're great. They're mm. wonderful. I dry them and put them in my house. Uh, oh, maybe I shouldn't say said that. Um, but he- <laughs> It's fine.
0: You're allowed to do that here in the UK. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's not good. illegal as long as you don't try to extract. The opium from it good to this know country.
1: yes so but they could prove his intent because he had this book that said you can turn this into poppy tea a narcotic tea and i realized i was in the same boat i had his book i had planted them with intent to manufacture the controlled substance um and the police could link him to me because I hadn't been exchanging emails with him. So it suddenly began this fear and loathing, uh, this period of like incredible anxiety about what was going on in my garden. I was following his case um, and he was charged and um, uh, spent several nights in jail. And uh, I started reading up on the drug war, um, mm. which I hadn't paid nearly enough attention to. This was the late 90s. This is the peak of the drug war. I mean, we see, yes, it's a creation of Richard Nixon, but it reached its peak under Bill Clinton um, with his crime bill. Um, three,
0: strikes.
1: Know, three strikes. Three um, uh, strikes, death penalty for drug kingpins, um, which could include a, a large grower of marijuana. I mean, really draconian penalties. And you know, Bill Clinton was always trying to um, firm up his right flank and show that he was, you know, just as Republican as the Republicans, mm. welfare reform, all these kind of things. I mean, this was the dark side that of the That old story Clinton.
0: of progressives trying to win from the right.
1: Exactly, it really always works out well. <laughs> so I started learning it, the, what risk I was at. Um, and not only was I at risk for arrest for manufacturing a controlled substance, but under the drug laws in America, we have asset forfeiture provisions which are federal laws that say if any private property is involved in the commission of a drug crime, it may be seized by the government and the burden of proof is not beyond a shadow of a doubt. The burden of proof is like probable cause and even if you are not, let's say you're growing a drug on your property in your backyard or your kid is without your Mm -hmm. knowledge and uh, it's discovered, they can take your house even if you are not charged with any crime. The property is guilty, um, which is a very weird idea. So I was. But a property eligible- can't
0: have mens rea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't study law, but I know that a property can't have criminal intent.
1: We don't think so. No, I don't know how you determine that. But. The fact is, there it is, it's growing. And this is just true when drugs are found in cars, the police department takes mm-hmm. them. Um, they take lots of property this way. It supports police budgets. Um, and these laws are still in place. They've been weakened a little bit in recent years, but they're basically still in place. So I was at risk of losing my freedom, losing my house for growing poppies. Um, that's how bad things had gotten. And then the next question became, um, well... Is the government really interested in this? Are they doing anything mm. besides Jim Hogshire? What are they doing? And so I started doing some investigative journalism. And meanwhile, I'm growing poppies the whole time. I haven't ripped them out. Um, is it
0: like in Goodfellas where Ray Liotta is looking at the police helicopter, yes. being like, "It's is following that one me." For me?
1: <laughs> I got very paranoid. I have to say. Um, so I started calling. Uh, I would call like the local police department. Um, not give them my name and said you know I want to grow poppies but are they illegal and 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 they didn't know anything about it and they were like um, is it the red kind <laughs> <laughs> now the red kind are fine but it's the you know they were totally ignorant about it um, and then I started talking to seed sellers and garden centers and it turned out they were hearing from the Drug enforcement administration saying, don't sell these seeds, uh, there's a problem. Um, and uh, and there were a couple other busts of people growing opium poppies. And it became clear the government was trying to quietly stop this thing from becoming a fad. But they didn't want to do it in a showy way because they'd be informing people, hey, it's very easy to grow your own opium. You,
0: like parents probably have them in their little flower pots and whatnot.
1: <laughs> exactly, and, and you would freak people out because as soon as everyone had the state of knowledge, all poppy growing would essentially be illegal.
0: It's almost like post-lapsarian, you know, you've eaten exactly. from the tree the, the, of knowledge, the forbidden knowledge, yeah. yes.
1: So, anyway, I'm getting more and more paranoid and um and it, and the piece which was going to be this nice little column uh, becomes this 10,000-word uh, parable of the drug war of like how did we ever get here? And that, that such an innocent activity could be such a crime. I
0: mean, could I ask you a question about that? Because one of the things that maybe came across to me, and I don't mean that this was done cynically or, or whatever, but in order to navigate how racialized and class-based the drug war is. I mean, look, if I walk around with class A drugs in my neighborhood of Tottenham, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to be stopped and searched, I mean, probably more likely than like a white person of my class and my gender, but still overall not that likely. Was there an aspect of you like leaning into the character of the innocuous gardener? Yeah, Because it gives you the permission in terms of race, class and occupation to be interested in altering your consciousness in a way that, you know, a young black guy being like, I just wanna get fucked up, doesn't have that leeway.
1: Without question, um, as a a white man, and uh, you know, I was a lot younger then obviously, but uh, as a white man of a certain age, I was uh, not the obvious, target of the drug war um it's not to say you know there aren't white people in jail for Mm. for dealing drugs but it tends to be at a very high level and large amounts
0: high level where they tend to be poor you know like yeah
1: or that or they're making meth or something like Mm. that and they're poor and it's the only way they can make a living without question um the drug war has been i mean we know this um president nixon uh apparently revealed it to his aide john Mm. ehrlichman i tell the story in the book so Nixon launches the drug war in 1970 mm. with the Controlled Substances Act, and then starts driving all these UN treaties, by the way. I mean, we sort of forced the rest of the world to follow our lead on uh, the way we police drugs. Rewrote
0: Colombia's constitution.
1: Yes, and did enormous damage to that country and several other countries in South America. Why did he do it? Well, he claimed that there was, you know, this public health problem. People, lots of drugs being used and we had to get in trouble. This was, the, this was public enemy number one, he said. It came out later that um, his aide, John Ehrlichman, who was his domestic policy advisor, but one of the top three people in the administration, um, gave an interview to Dan Baum, uh, a journalist who'd written a very good book on the drug war. And he said, our, enemy, our, our big enemies, the Nixon administration, were the blacks and the hippies. Mm. And we knew if we criminalized LSD and cannabis, we could go after them. It would give us a tool. We could disrupt their communities, and we could depict them as drug fiends. That's what the drug war was about. So it was a political act. It was not a public health campaign. And um, and they were, you know, he he could not have been more clear about it. Um, if you are uh, law enforcement and you are dealing with uh, a community you regard as dangerous or criminal. Having cannabis be illegal is, a, is such a gift because odds are pretty good if you bust somebody for something, you can find some cannabis or plant some on them. And that's very easy to prove compared to other, other crimes, which are complicated to prove. You have to prove someone was at the place and had the conspiracy and the mens rea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, there's cannabis in the car. That's all <laughs> I need, done, end of story. So it gave an enormous amount of power to the police. And, you know, they won't give that up easily um, at this point. And then with LSD, you could criminalize the anti-war movement. Um, and, you know, Nixon really believed that it was use of psychedelics that was uh, inspiring American boys to, to refuse to fight. That's unprecedented, you know. For most of history, you send 18-year-old boys off to war and they march. And, um, and suddenly they weren't doing it. And he was convinced it was the LSD. And there may be some truth to that.
0: In terms of the effect that LSD has, not that I've ever done it, mom, it has in terms of opening you up to other people, making you feel very oh, connected. Yes. It's they then don't... hard to murder somebody who you feel.
1: There's that, to. but yes, there's there's the connection factor. I think there's also though the um, uh, rejection of conventional ways of thinking that you mm-hmm. suddenly question everything and everything seems kind of arbitrary and like. Why Why can Nixon send me off to die? Mm. Um, so you had a good lot question. of people-
0: very good question.
1: Yeah, people questioned authority. And that was part of the culture of LSD then. First of all, withdrawing from uh, straight society, right? You had, we called it the generation gap. You mm-hmm. had this very unusual period in America where- the two generations had very separate cultures. Young people wanted to dress differently, to talk differently. They had a whole different vocabulary. They had uh, different inebriants than their parents. They were not interested in alcohol. They were interested in, in marijuana and, and psychedelics, uh, dif- different sexual mores. I mean, it was it was remarkable the line that was drawn and. Um, And LSD was a big part of that. It it was LSD became a rite of passage into that Mm. counterculture, um, Most rites of passage knit culture together, right? You have adults supervising a ritual that brings adults, uh, adolescents into the adult community. And you
0: you talk about that with regards to peyote, right? It's something which is traditionally supervised in Native American cultures by watchful elders Elders, to kind of initiate young people into- And
1: that's the way it normally works. But here we had this very unusual situation where the young had devised their own rite of passage. And it- didn't bring them into adult society, quite the opposite. It brought them into this separate society. So it was regarded as threatening to a lot of people. And that's one of the reasons we had a backlash and 30 years of research stopped.
0: But I guess the question I'm asking you is in that war on drugs context that we're still in, do you have to create the character of the curious gardener in order to sort of stave off uh, notions of the criminal, the deviant, the seditionist? In oh, it's, order to with be my audience, yeah, it's, it
1: definitely makes it. I'm the most benign hero in the story, if you mm-hmm. can say hero. Or, I mean, you know, without question. And it would it would read very differently if I were writing this as a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, First of all, the risk would be greater. Although the Mm. risk was real. The Mm. risk was pretty terrifying.
0: Because you're not doing it in private, right? You're publishing something. I'm
1: I'm confessing, you know. So just to finish the story. So Mm. I write this article. It's this parable of the drug war. It's like, I think it's a very strong piece of satire about the drug war. And when I hand it in, Harper's willing to run it and give me all this space, like 14,000 words or something. And uh, I said, "Well, we, we should get a lawyer, don't you think?" And they said, "Yes." So they send the they send it to a criminal defense lawyer from Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's, that's the jurisdiction I'm in. And this is a guy who represents mafia guys and drug dealers, and you know, he's just <laughs> he's a- like
0: I'm used to Rico cases. Yes, like- <laughs>
1: exactly. And he drives up to our house in rural Connecticut, and my four year old is napping upstairs. And he sits my wife and I down in the in the living room, and he said, "Well, you can't publish this." What? This is a confession to a schedule one violation. Here's what could happen. And he lays down $25,000 fine, 20 years in prison, maximum sentence, take your house, um, they can destroy you. And they they may wanna make an example before this poppy craze gets out of hand. I was like shocked. And I was like, I'm a freelance writer. This was gonna be my payday for the year, mm-hmm. this piece. And, um, and I'm basically being told I can't publish it. Um, Word gets back to the publisher of Harper's, a man named Rick MacArthur, who, to his credit, is a great champion of the First Amendment um, and willing to put his uh, money where his mouth is. Uh, And when he hears that this lawyer has said, you can't publish this article, he says, we need a new lawyer. (laughs) which is what people do when they don't like legal advice. So instead of hiring a criminal defense lawyer, he he hires a very prominent First Amendment lawyer in New York, a guy who represents The Nation magazine and all these other magazines. And Victor Kovner is his name. And uh, Victor reads the article and and says, you must publish this article for the good of the republic.
0: And you're like, yes, but what about like the good of my house? Exactly.
1: And I was like, okay, now what do I do? And it's not just my decision because it involved my wife and my son. So, finally, two things happen. One is I asked Victor, I said, if I wanted to reduce the chances that they come after me, uh, is there anything I could do? Are there parts of the article that, uh, that are particularly antagonistic to the government? He said, yes, there are two parts. One is the recipe where you describe how to make poppy tea, which is very easy, I can tell you later. And, <laughs> um, and the other is the trip report where you consume it and, and you say how it makes you feel. And if you cut those two parts out, I think that would diminish your risk considerably. So I decided to do that. I never felt good about it. I felt like I was censoring myself, um, but better than censoring the whole article. And the second thing that happened was I asked Rick for, to indemnify me, mm-hmm. um, which he did. He, he wrote the most astonishing contract any writer's ever gotten. I mean, if, if I was arrested, not only would he pay to defend me, he'd give my wife a salary the whole time wow. I was out of work and in jail. And if they took my house, he would replace it. <laughs> I know. Oh
0: my God, man, the media industry has really changed.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who would do that. Rupert Murdoch wouldn't do that for any of his writers. I don't
0: think so. Um,
1: so I went ahead and published. And anticlimactic, nothing happened. So, um,
0: I mean, let's get to the trip report bit. Yeah. OPMT is not something that I've had. And, mom, I lie, did have actually taken LSD. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never had opium tea. To me, sounds like a very scary drug because obviously you associate opium with heroin. Yes. And you know, I've read my Coleridge and I've read my Wordsworth, yeah. and I know that these guys were totally off their tits on laudanum and opium the whole right. time. And it sounds great, but it sounds well. You don't
1: want to use a lot of it, and you don't want to use it for very long. It's highly mm-hmm. addictive. And um, uh, but as a you know one time experience, it's it was thoroughly pleasant. It was mild. Um,
0: did you feel sleepy or nauseous or
1: no some people do get nausea and I do when I take an opiate and a pill for mm. like dental work or something I, I really can't stand it but at this level no it's very bitter it doesn't taste very good um but it was I, I felt like vaguely dissociated in a very nice way I think I have some phrase I felt like I was sitting outside on the porch of my consciousness. And I have no idea what that means, but I wrote that in my journal when I when I had it. And it was, you know, if you had back trouble, it'd be great, you know, mild, it's an analgesic. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why people take opiates to relieve pain and it lifts pain. And, um, and this was far lower dose than the pill you, the Oxycontin pill or mm. something you'd get. And it's very easy to make, you just crush the heads up and and soak them in hot water or in alcohol, and then you have lodenum. That's I mean, what lodenum is. Did it make is.
0: you want to write something like Kublai Khan or?
1: <laughs> no, it made me just want to sit there and not do anything. Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't inspired, I wasn't inspired. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a profound drug experience, but it was interesting that it came out of my garden. That I mean, how incredible that I can grow something that changes my experience of consciousness. I, I think that's pretty remarkable.
0: But there's such a difference between the paranoia and not paranoia is the wrong word, but the very intense fear that you felt about how you'd be treated by the state, the experience of your friend who wrote Opium for the Masses, and the Sackler family, who are the owners so, of Purdue Pharma, and they've got art galleries named after them.
1: Yes, And they the world's in biggest drug dealers. Yes. It's like
0: the, the Pablo Escobar wing at the VNA.
1: Well, that's the reason why I wanted to publish or republish this piece in this new book. Um, because the story I wanted to tell was something I didn't know at the time, which is the very year I am having this back and forth with the government and dealing with this fear and loathing and all these lawyers about this supposed new threat of people making poppy tea that year, 1996, um, the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, their, their pharmaceutical company is introducing OxyContin. They are planting the seeds of the opiate crisis, which killed close to 150,000 Americans last year.
0: Which is on a par with the AIDS epidemic, really.
1: Yeah, what? I mean, it, it, it's three times as many people die in auto accidents. I mean, it's a huge public health problem. Um, and it's gotten worse during the pandemic. Um, for for various reasons, and they they sold this drug as a safer, less addictive opiate, and they bribed doctors and they um, you know aggressively marketed it, and convinced doctors that they were under treating pain. Um, and doctors began giving out opiates for things they had never given it out before. It used to be around surgery. Um, medical procedures or when people are dying, but now it was given out for back pain or workplace injuries, or they just kind of expanded the the indications that you could get opiates for. And people would start with prescription opiates. They would develop a habit. When their doctor realized that, the doctor would cut them off and they would go to the street. And, and that's when they would end up with drugs contaminated with fentanyl and things like that, which is lethal. What's,
0: what's the relationship between the opioid crisis the prescribing of oxycontin and deindustrialization because one of the things that i've read is that you have this uh, disproportionate impact of the opioid crisis in the rust belt
1: yeah you um, do i mean it's people who you know these are the jobs that have gone to mexico these are people who um have too much time on their hands and not enough money. And also there are people who are on disability. In other words, people who did suffer workplace injuries. Those are, those are blue collar workers who get hurt at work. I mean, we have a huge population of people on permanent disability. And that population was given a lot of opiates and many of them got addicted. There's definitely a class uh, vector on which it, it arranges itself. Um, but, you know, what it said to me is that the biggest public health problem tied to drugs that we have had since we had a drug war has been around legal drugs Mm. there has been no problem of that um, scale or magnitude with illicit drugs Um, that to me is a pretty damning indictment of the drug war um, that they missed the real issue that the fda approved oxycontin Um, And that uh, it was allowed to flourish at the same time lots of people of color were being incarcerated. Um, So it's, um, yeah, so that's why the piece now with this new uh, wrapping around it where I talk about the Sacklers and, Mm. and, and what was going on. Totally outside of my can. I mean, it it was a real lesson for journalists too that Mm. you think this is the story.
0: But actually this is the story. But actually it's that
1: story and you completely miss it. This is why we need history and not just journalism.
0: Well, I mean, that's what I loved about the caffeine chapter is that in so many ways it is a history of capitalism. So if opioids are the drug of Deindustrialized neoliberal capitalism. Can you talk a little bit about caffeine yeah. in the 18th century? Because I loved this chapter.
1: So caffeine is is a is a fascinating case. I wanted to put it in because it's a legal drug. And mm-hmm. just like because we, we really get hung up on this, like, you know, legal drugs are good, illegal drugs are bad, and this moralization of drugs. But we're all using them of one kind or another. 90% of people on the planet use caffeine on a daily basis, whether it's coffee, tea, um, or or soda most sodas are caffeinated it's it's the only psychoactive we give our children I, I mean, mean
0: you know if you're Muslim you can't drink alcohol but uh the role of tea and coffee in right. Islamic countries is huge
1: yeah and that's why I mean and, and indeed they are caffeine and alcohol are in this seesaw relationship <laughs> in a very interesting way what's also interesting about caffeine is we can mark when it arrives in Europe um I mean, it starts in the, in uh, in um, Eastern Africa and Ethiopia, and the Arabian Peninsula has it earlier, but it, it shows up in London in the 1640s. Both coffee, tea, and chocolate. Great decade. And um
0: imagine if before that all you'd had was cabbage, not even a potato (laughs) at that point. And then suddenly along comes coffee, tea, and chocolate. No, but what you had was you
1: had alcohol. And um indeed people were drinking enormous amounts of alcohol before caffeine came in. The reason being, besides the fact people like it, is it's safer to drink than water. Mm. And so even children were given, you know, dilute alcohol, given cider, hard cider as we call it. Um because it was safer than the water. Because the, both the alcohol in alcohol and the fermentation process destroys bacteria, and microbes. You know, everybody's tipsy in England. You cannot operate heavy machinery in the state people were in. You cannot do double entry bookkeeping. You cannot have an industrial revolution <laughs> in the state people were in. And uh, so caffeine comes in and people start writing. I, I, I quote these accounts of, you know, a new, more sober Englishman has arisen. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously alcohol didn't go away. It's still very present. Yeah, it but just goes on a away
0: day. It's alive and well.
1: During the workday. it became caffeine. And caffeine is uh, takes off. You have this wonderful uh, coffee culture that that springs up. Coffee was big here before tea. Tea comes late. Tea was actually expensive and came later only after the whole imperialist you know relationship with china was established but coffee came first there were hundreds of coffee houses that sprang up in the course of a couple years it was like i don't know you know starbucks something or leon's or whatever you know whatever is on every corner in 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 england and they were wonderful places they were more democratic than um than pubs which had a class structure of course there was you know You couldn't sit anywhere, it depended on your class, Um, but anyone could sit anywhere. And when I say anyone, I mean any man uh, could sit anywhere in a coffee house. And each coffee house became uh, like a special interest magazine. Um, So if you were interested in literature, there was one you'd go to in Covent Garden and you would there would be Dryden and Pope and you know all the writers all would the Scriblarians. yeah the Scriblarians, right and if you were interested in uh, if you were in trade there was Lloyd's which became Lloyd's of London you could actually go there and find somebody to take out a policy on your shipment if you were interested in science there was one um, uh, very closely connected with the Royal Society and scientists would hang out there and I forget who it was but Newton or somebody like dissected a dolphin and you know once to show everybody you know that it was a mammal and At a um, coffee shop. At a coffee shop, yes. <laughs> Must have been pretty nasty. Um,
0: just imagine that with a flat white and you're like, there's a...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, a splayed dolphin. Um, so whatever your interest, you could find your coffee shop. And then people would also go from one to another bringing news. It was really like the internet of its time. And coffee became a big fad. People were drinking coffee. They tended to do it not at home, but in public. And it wasn't like a pub where people would just get you know, shit faced. Here the conversation was intense and it was very political too. People talked politics.
0: And was it less violent? Because when I think about the early modern tavern, I think about Christopher Marlowe like getting stabbed in the eye and that kind of thing. Was it just a less volatile environment? It was
1: definitely a more civil environment. I mean, alcohol, you know, breeds that kind of behavior in a way that caffeine doesn't. It was um, alarming to some because the conversation would turn to what's wrong with the the crown and and the government. And and in fact, the French revolution, the crowd that stormed the Bastille was whipped up in a coffee house, not a tavern. Um, And so caffeine had a huge effect on European history. And what's great about it is it's the only drug where we see the before and the after. So you can really tell a story of what's the impact of of that chemical arriving in Europe. And I think it was profound. Um, I think it contributes to the age of reason. I think it contributes to the enlightenment in France. All the great enlightenment thinkers were serious coffee hounds. I mean, I think it was Diderot who had like 72 cups a day. 72. Yes. Balzac. <laughs> um, but he got a you know encyclopedia written. Um, Balzac uh, could not write without, he was up all night on coffee on coffee he was convinced that his imagination depended on coffee he got to the point as his tolerance developed where he came up with a new way of ingesting coffee which is forget the water <laughs> he would basically ingest he thought this was the purest so racking form racking up
0: lines of coffee yeah, grounds exactly. like-
1: <laughs> he didn't snort it he swallowed it and can you imagine That's the even state worse. of his stomach Oy. i mean uh But he was convinced that was the way to deliver the biggest jolt of uh, caffeine to his brain. And I do think that this drug was instrumental in the rise of capitalism. And and the reason I think that's true is because it made us better workers. You could work longer, you could work harder, you could work with more refinement and focus. Um, You could handle heavy machinery and you could have a night shift and an overnight shift. you know, even if you had gas light, getting people to stay up that long was really hard. And um, and suddenly you had a drug that would help people stay up through the night. You could run your big machines 24 hours. So that was huge. I mean, so in terms of extracting value from the English worker, caffeine was a fantastic tool. In the industrial revolution, in the factories, it wasn't coffee, it was tea. Mm. Um, and it was tea with huge amounts of sugar. Um,
0: There's the famous Stuart Hall quote uh, where he says, "I am the sugar at the bottom of the English cup of tea. Other people oh, are the tea themselves." What do we know about the English? They can't get through the day without their cup of tea. But oh, I love that. that external history of the colonies is right here. Yes. Our notion oh yeah. Of the whole
1: imperialism. You needed the you needed the the sugar because um, the tea was it was pretty bad tea. It was very bitter and um, at least initially and. The sugar also kept people going. Um, it is itself a stimulant, but it also was a very important source of calories in the, in the English working class diet. I forget what the percentage is, but it was a very high percentage of calories. It was just pure sugar with no nutrition and obviously all sorts of other problems that it gave people. And so the proof, I think, that caffeine offered more to the, to capital than to labor is the fact that, um, the coffee break became an institution uh, in America. Yeah,
0: can you can you tell yeah. us about the invention of the coffee break? Because yeah. I can't imagine a working day without it. But it's a relatively new invention.
1: It is. It was. It was not codified till the 1950s. But there's a story I tell in the book. It's a wonderful history of um, a company in Colorado that made men's neckties. And during the war, uh, during World War II, the young men who were operating the looms, and it was very complicated work, very hard work, many, many colors, complicated patterns, uh, they got drafted and they went off to war. And so they brought in these older men to do it, uh, and the quality control went down. And they, and the, they, couldn't, they couldn't do an eight-hour shift. And then they tried women. They brought in women to do it. And the women could do a beautiful job, but they couldn't do more than like four or five hours. And th- then the quality control would go down. So he convenes a meeting. It's called Wigwam Weavers is the company. <laughs> he convenes a meeting and he says, what could we do? You know, we need eight hour shifts. And they said, well, if you gave us two breaks and gave us coffee at like 10 in the morning and four in the afternoon, we could do it. And so he, he does an experiment. And suddenly their work is just as good as the men who are off at war and productivity goes way up. So he institutionalized. in fact, he makes it mandatory, um, coffee break, time off, and the free drug. Uh, He provides the coffee. And they get paid during
0: their coffee break.
1: And they're getting paid during these 20 minutes. He later tried to take back (laughs) 20 minutes, but that didn't work. Um, And so this is the first time. There were other cases where we know of corporations that gave coffee and tea to their workers, and we know others that gave break time. But the combination of the, the the drug and the time in which to enjoy it begins at this company and it takes off. And, and uh, American businesses realize that um, this is a very good investment to give them the 20 minutes off and give them coffee and tea and you will get a better day's work out of them and thus was born the coffee break. One
0: of the things that this book did for me, I consider myself someone who's read a lot about drugs, mostly from a drug war perspective and a kind of, you know, um criminal justice angle, but one of the things that it did for me was it foregrounded a plant-centric way of understanding social history. Mm-hmm. And it was in the chapter on caffeine where I started looking at the ways in which different psychoactive plants interacted with each other and then interacted with migration, with the development of capitalism and I was reading that middle chapter and yeah, I was in this park in Tottenham and I stopped dead. And I thought my presence in this country as a South Asian person to- is because of tea. Yeah, it's I'm here because of tea. And then I thought about- um, And it- opium
1: to some extent. Wow,
0: well, cause then I was gonna say, have you ever heard the story of Brilliant Chang? No. So um, this is in the early 1920s in this country. There's a huge cocaine moral panic. And the moral panic is about here are these Chinese nightclub owners who are plying white women with cocaine. So here's also the specter of miscegenation. This is cocaine, not opium. No, and this is cocaine. And uh, Brilliant Chang is a kind of, you know, nightclub owner, underworld figure. And the accusation is that he's given cocaine to a dancer called Frida at one of his establishments. She dies of a cocaine overdose and he's subsequently deported. So, We think about the war on drugs as racialized in an American context, but interestingly in the British context, it's in the sort of interwar period, it's very much about Chinese migrants and also the smaller number of South Asian migrants who are here, opium, cocaine, and we're only here because of tea. So you've got these two elements of a literal drug war, wage war, colonize so you can get the tea and then also police the populations here on the basis of cocaine and opium
1: and you also have in in north america you have migration coming to the united states from countries that have been destroyed by the drug war i mean that's Mm. another way The, the the pressure on you know central american um, migrants to come north has to do with the fact that um, drug lords are taking over their, their towns and cities and their dangerous places. The, the influence on drugs moving people around the world, yeah, it's profound and it's still going on. It's going on in our time.
0: Um, there's a writer called Oscar Guardiola Rivera and one of the things that he observed during the financial crisis is that the big banks which are, you know, about to collapse are kept afloat by injections of liquid capital from where? from the drug cartels. So there is this legitimate uh, financialized aspect of drugs, and then you've got the policing, which happens under That's
1: fascinating, I wasn't aware of that. Um, But the damage that the drug war has done to the countries of Central and South America is profound. and I'm encouraged that support for the drug war is waning in the U.S. Um, the Republican Party will no longer defend it. Um, state by state, we are beginning to legalize drugs. Um, Oregon did it last year, and uh, Colorado is likely to do it this year. Um, marijuana is now legal in 35 states. Um, some states are releasing people uh, you know, who were incarcerated for marijuana crimes. I think there's a general recognition that it has failed, and that we need to look for other ways to uh, to deal with it and and decriminalize or legalize drugs. It's it's not an easy thing to do. It's complicated, um, but the political wind is shifting. I think, and 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 the challenge in for the next ten years is going to be how do we do it well? How do we decriminalize it well? Because there are there are dangers. I mean, you know, the Greeks were right. You know, drugs aren't simple. They are. They had a word for them, pharmakon, which meant, meant both poison and blessing, and they are both. And opiates are a great example. I mean, they that's are, what the
0: moly is, isn't it? The the, uh, the plant in Greek myth, which comes from the spilled blood of gods and titans. Oh, I don't know. And this. it has the power to transform. So moly is a kind of pharmaka.
1: Interesting. Um. So ph- and pharmaka has a third meaning too, which is um, scapegoat. Mm. And we blamed a lot of things on drugs too. Uh, they're very useful in many ways <laughs> for, for many different kinds of people and different kinds of interests. Um, but I think, that I, I feel like, uh, and also this, this renaissance of work on psychedelics and mm-hmm. this the discovery that this you know, these supposedly dangerous and evil substances actually might heal um, and might help with the mental health crisis. That's completely changing the image of psychedelics and leading to one state after another decriminalizing them. So things are changing. Things are definitely changing.
0: Of the drugs that you discussed there's one which you don't actually take and that's peyote. peyote yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why?
1: Yeah. So peyote is a cactus that grows in a narrow band along the Rio Grande River, half in Mexico, more in Mexico and then half in in Texas.
0: It looks like a little pincushion.
1: Yes, it's a very cute little pincushion ta- cactus. Grows very slowly um, and and is not easy to grow, uh, much harder than poppies. Um, it's really important to Native Americans. Um, there is something called the Native American church, which uses peyote in their rituals. Um, it is a vitally important institution, uh, for American Indians in that it is, um, really has allowed them to, to keep their cultures intact at a time when they were being decimated. And, um, uh, the Native American Church is—it's uh, also very important to healing, rites of passage within the Indian community—and they object
0: very much to calling it a drug. It's medicine. It's and medicine. They would it's never also use the an word ancestor. Drug. It's referred to. It's yes, sort of a, a yeah. living. It Uh, is. It's an animate
1: thing. So they gather it in Texas and it's endangered. There's not enough of it. Um, The Native American church is quite big. It's 250,000 people at least. There's a shortage. It's precious to them. They don't believe in cultivated peyote having the same effect. It has to be a gift from God. And so I was very curious to try peyote, but I, I kind of realized at a certain point that as a as a white person, I shouldn't. Um, that if I want mescaline, there are two other ways to get it. There's another cactus that produces it from South America that's very easy to grow. And I do grow legally in my garden. And there's um, synthetic mescaline, which you can get with some difficulty. You know, we've taken enough from Native Americans, and and this is something vitally important to them. And I think, uh, you know, the way to show respect for that practice and that plant is to leave it alone.
0: But I suppose even if you solve the scarcity problem, so say you've got a supply of cultivated Peyote for, you know, white people, Westerners, non-Indigenous peoples. Yeah,
1: or I, I chose to grow it grow myself. You know,
0: yeah. is, is there still a case to go, actually, there's a cultural boundary here, which I shouldn't tread on?
1: Yeah, I mean, you could make a cultural appropriation argument. Um, you know, look, but we've traded drugs all over the world. I mean, our use of caffeine is cultural appropriation. Um, so where do you draw the line? I, you know, I think if I think participating in a in a faux Native American ceremony with the drums and the headdress and the TP, that's cultural appropriation. I think. I that mean, that it's offensive. Just, it's it's in bad taste. It's, mm. Yeah, it's cringeworthy. That said, though, one of the reasons I wanted to write about the Native American Church, and I interviewed a lot mm. of Indians about the ritual and what they got out of it, and some of them were very secretive about it, others were very open. I mean, it's important to understand that Native American tribes are not monolithic. Mm. You know, before the white man got there, they were fighting with each other, <laughs> um, and many of them hate each other. I
0: mean, look, lots of colonized people are still fighting each other after the white man got there. And it's
1: true; it hasn't stopped. Yeah, and it's definitely it's true; it hasn't stopped in the Native American community. I do think at another level, they're very important lessons we can learn. When psychedelics came into the West in the 60s, 50s and 60s, they came without an instruction manual. People didn't know what these were. And there was a whole project that I talked about in my previous book, um, How to Change Your Mind, of like, what is this good for? How does it work? How do you take it? You know, they used to like give people LSD in these white rooms with fluorescent lights and then leave them alone to see what would happen. Very, very bad vibe. Very bad bad vibe, vibe. but you know, Nobody knew, and had we paid attention to the indigenous cultures that have been using psychedelics for 6,000 years at least, and weren't so arrogant to think that we could figure it out on our own, we could have saved ourselves a lot of trouble and a lot of recklessness. We would not have done things like putting LSD in the punch bowl as people did in the 60s. Um, yes, dosing people without the permission. Imagine if you
0: started tripping and you Imagine. didn't know that you'd take an LSD. And the
1: CIA was doing that too, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh,
0: yeah, they were in hospitals.
1: Yes, yeah. Christ. So if you look at how Native Americans and other indigenous cultures use psychedelics, there's always that leader, somebody who knows the territory. It's never done casually. It's always done with a clear intention um, and, and surrounded by ritual. And drugs that are surrounded by ritual are not the drugs people get in trouble with um so at that level I don't know if you call that cultural appreciation mm-hmm. those are those are kind of principles of indigenous drug use from all over the world and had we heeded those uh I think we would not have um, had this backlash we, we we would have discovered the healing power of of psychedelics a lot sooner than we did
0: I mean I've got one final question for you. We're having this conversation, which is fundamentally about bodily autonomy, ways for us to exercise our rights over ourselves and experience a change of consciousness. And We're having this conversation the same week that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. What accounts for this difference where the Republicans and the right are able to recognize bodily autonomy when it comes to decriminalizing cannabis, but not over a woman? making a choice about if and when she wants to have a child.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you're looking for logic and a logical connection between different positions, and there is none. Um, you know, the fact that it's women and their bodily autonomy mm. is different. Of course, we're going to have a fight over an abortion pill, a drug, mm. um, which um, many Republicans also want to ban. Um, and there's it's, the answer in a word is hypocrisy. Complete utter hypocrisy.
0: That's a really light note for us to end on. I didn't uh, structure it very well, but Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on Downstream.
1: Oh Ash, my pleasure.
0: Rivka Brown here, commissioning editor and reporter for Navara. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just one pound a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just one pound a month by heading to navara.media.com forward slash support.